Father, thank you that we can come together to praise your name. Thank you that you have sent your son for us, the incarnate word, the living word, to bring us forth by your word through your spirit and to continue that work by your word in our lives and sanctifying us that we may have life in your son and live in your son eternally. Help us now to look to your word in humility, to be instructed, to be admonished, to be exhorted, uh, to live for you. Help us to apply these truths in a way that would honor you, in a way that would be pleasing in your sight, in, in a way that would encourage those around us, in a way that would display your goodness and love towards us. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Acts chapter 21, verses 17 to 26. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands are... There are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Titled this sermon, Gospel Unity. Gospel Unity. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What leads someone to give up something, to sacrifice something for another person? I can think of two things, love and humility. And love and humility are necessary attitudes and actions for Christ-like unity, for gospel unity that is lived out, exercised by as the text said, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. 
with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves, doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. In other words, having a care and concern for other people, having a loving, humble, selfless attitude just like Christ did. And the Apostle Paul here demonstrates and displays this same Christ-like love and humility that cares about and is concerned for the unity of the church that comes through the power of the gospel. And this was displayed and modeled by Paul throughout his missionary journeys, and particularly as Paul anticipated going to Jerusalem, and even as he arrives in Jerusalem, as we'll see this afternoon. During Paul's third missionary journey, he was set. He set his mind. He was determined to go to Jerusalem and to be there on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 20, verse 16, and to also deliver the collection from the Gentile churches, the needy Jerusalem church. And doing so would be an affirmation and confirmation of the loving unity between the Jewish and Gentile churches that they are truly united as one in Christ, united together. And so this was a priority for Paul because of his love for the church. And as Paul was anticipating being in Jerusalem, he had an idea of what awaited him, but he didn't know all of the details of what that would look like. Back in Acts chapter 20, verses 22 and 23, it says, And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. So despite that, Paul was determined to go to Jerusalem for the strengthening of the brethren, the strengthening of the church, and for the spread of the gospel. And he says in chapter 20, verse 24, I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And in chapter 21, verses 1 through 16, what we looked at last time, Luke recounted how the Lord was preparing Paul for Jerusalem so that we would see his unwavering conviction to serve Christ and his church. And we took note of three aspects of Paul's journey to Jerusalem that highlighted his unwavering conviction to serve Christ and his church. First, as he was heading to Jerusalem. Secondly, as he understood the cost. And thirdly, as he was ready for Jerusalem. The Lord was preparing Paul for Jerusalem along the way. He surrounded Paul with fellow believers who would be encouraged by Paul and Paul by them, and who would also serve to solidify Paul's conviction to be in Jerusalem. They wanted to deter him from completing and fulfilling the ministry that God had given to him. The Lord continued to surround Paul with fellow believers who provided hospitality, who provided fellowship, and who reminded him of the power of the gospel of the grace of God. And we saw that with Philip, the evangelist, welcoming Paul to stay with him in his home, who years earlier, because of Saul or Paul's persecution of the church at Jerusalem, had to scatter to Jerusalem and then to Caesarea. But the Lord used it all in his providence to continue the spread of the gospel and to demonstrate unity in the gospel. And Paul was warned about what would happen in Jerusalem. He was urged, as we saw last time, by others in love not to go there. But he was never prohibited from going to Jerusalem. And so what the Lord was doing was preparing Paul for Jerusalem by continuing to strengthen his convictions to set his mind on God's interests. The Lord sent the prophet Agabus to Paul to prophesy what would happen in order to continue to strengthen Paul's convictions and for him to continue to consider the cost, to understand what it is to follow Jesus Christ wholeheartedly and to know that it is worth it because it's all for Jesus Christ, what Christ has done for us. And Paul was fixed on going to Jerusalem, being there on the day of Pentecost, being there to deliver the collection to the Jerusalem church that was in need, 
being there to strengthen the church, to show the unity of the church through the power and the spread of the gospel. And Paul's arrival in Jerusalem now marks the end of his third missionary journey. The rest of Acts will focus on his arrest, his trials, and his imprisonment. And so in these verses, Luke recounts Paul's arrival in Jerusalem so that we would see his care and concern for the unity of the church. Paul's care and concern for the unity of the church. And we'll take note of how the gospel, the gospel transforms all of our relationships and unites us together and how love and humility maintains that unity that we have in Christ to the extent that we should be willing to sacrifice our Christian freedoms and liberties and preferences for the sake of maintaining unity within the church. This is Luke's focus in this section as he recounts Paul's arrival in Jerusalem through the update, as we'll see in verses 17 to 28, the update, the rumor in verses 20b to verse 21, and the solution in verses 22 to 26. And all of these relate to the unity of the church through Christ and maintaining unity within the church of Christ. So first we'll look at the update given to us in verses 17 through 20a. It says, After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. Paul and his ministry companions have now arrived in Jerusalem, and when they get there, they are greeted and gladly received and welcomed by the brethren. And on the following day, it says, Paul meets with James and the elders to give them a ministry update and testimony of the work of God through him. It's been stated that Paul wanted to be in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and this would be when thousands and thousands of Jews would flock to Jerusalem, and that will be significant, as we'll see next week when he gets arrested in the temple and therefore has an audience to defend himself before the Jews. And guess what he's going to do? He's going to preach the gospel. And Paul also wanted to go to Jerusalem to drop off this collection from the Gentile churches to the needy Jerusalem church. And so this would be also when he would present this offering to them. It's not mentioned here as you look in the text, but it is in his letter to the Romans in chapter 15. It's also mentioned in his second letter to the Corinthians in chapters 8 and 9. And it's also mentioned later in Acts, in Acts chapter 24, verse 17. But here in verse 18, it says that Paul met with James and all the elders to give them an update. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, the leader of the Jerusalem church, the James who wrote James, not James, the brother of John, who was killed back in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. And by this point in Acts, it's around AD 57, James had already written his epistle, which was written between AD 44 and 49. It was the first canonical book chronologically of the New Testament, and he would be the leader of the Jerusalem church until his martyrdom in AD 62. So this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, leader of the Jerusalem church. He not only met with James, but it says that he also met with James and all the elders. All the elders, plural, because there should be more than one. And during this transitional period in Acts, there's a shift or change in leadership as we've been learning about. When the church in Jerusalem began, it was led by the apostles. We see that in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Acts chapter 4, verses 35 to 37. Acts chapter 5, verse 2. But as the church grew during this time of transition, the apostles began to identify elders to assume the leadership role over the church. We, we know that there's only a few apostles. They were 
uh, there during Jesus' ministry. They were there for his resurrection. And so there's no longer apostles today. They were only there during Jesus' time, during his ministry. And so this leadership role now transitioned to elders. Elders are first mentioned in chapter 11, verse 30. Then in chapter, chapter 14, verse 23, where Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in every church. And by the time of the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, we begin to see more of their presence and prominence alongside the apostles during this time of transition. So if you would turn with me to Acts chapter 15, we'll, we'll look at this um, ministry of the apostles transitioning to elders and their ministry together and alongside one another. Acts chapter 15, verse 2, it says, And when Paul and Barmas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barmas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning the issue. So there they're listed together. Verse 4, When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. Verse 6, The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. Jump to verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. Verse 23, they sent this letter by them, the apostles and the brethren who are elders, to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles. Greetings. Chapter 16, verse 4 as well. Now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. And so we see their ministry alongside one another, which began with primarily the apostles. Now they're joining together in a leadership role. Now we'll see this transition being handed over specifically to the elders to oversee the, the, the church. Now we're back in Acts 21, verse 18. We have mention of James and all the elders, but no mention of the apostles. The responsibility of leadership was handed over to the elders. In other words, this is where some get the, the principle or the practice of elder rule being established as the New Testament pattern for church polity and governance which is also affirmed in the epistles. Acts chapter 20, verse 17, Paul called to himself the elders of the church. He addressed the, the elders, the Ephesian elders in Miletus, calling them to watch over the flock, to be on guard, to be prepared for what's coming. We see in 1 Timothy 5, 17, it says, the elders who rule, again, they're given the responsibility, delegated responsibility from the Lord to oversee, to rule over the church of Christ. Titus chapter 1 verse 5 says appoint elders in every city. There's this transition to elders being in the leadership role. First Peter 5 2. Elders are the, are to shepherd, meaning to lead, to oversee the flock of God. First Peter 5 5 says be subject to your elders. And so you see the role of elders within the church and their delegated authority to oversee the church and the members to be subject to these leaders. And it's a move away from the apostles. And so here, Paul doesn't give an update to the apostles. He gives an update to the elders, James and the elders of the church at Jerusalem. Verse 19 says, He began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles. Among the Gentiles, this means that this was God's plan of redemption from the very beginning. It included both Jews and Gentiles. He began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles, through his ministry. And verse 20, when they heard it, they began glorifying God. What is Paul's perspective on ministry? Do you notice in verse 19 and 20 where the focus is? What was his perspective on ministry? How does Paul think about his life? Who does Paul relate everything to? Who does Paul give credit to? He says the things which God did 
among the Gentiles through his ministry. He understood that every good that was being done through him was the Lord working in his life and through his life. And so he gives all credit, all honor, all glory to God. Paul understood and viewed himself as an instrument in the hands of God. And in chapter Acts chapter 14, verse 27, it says, Paul and Barnabas, as Paul and Barnabas arrived back at the church in Antioch, it says, when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So when they arrived in Jerusalem, as well in the council in chapter 15, verse 4, it says, when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. In Acts chapter 15, verse 12, it says, Paul and Barnabas were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Paul was constantly pointing everything back to the Lord. This is God's work through my ministry that he's given to me and gifted to me. He's called me to it. He supplied my needs and empowered me to accomplish it. And so it's God doing everything through my ministry that he's given to me. Romans 15, verses 17 and 18, he says, Therefore, in Christ Jesus... I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God, for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. And so Paul understood that this was God's doing because this was all of God's plan, and so all the glory belongs to God. And in verse 28, we see the appropriate and reasonable response. When they heard it, they began glorifying God. How often do we take credit or fail to give credit to God for what he has done in our lives or through our lives? Are we seeking for man to glorify us or for others to glorify God? As we tell about What is going on in our lives? Is the focus directed towards us? Is the arrow pointing this way or is the arrow pointing up to the God who is working in and through our lives? 2 Corinthians 10.17 says, He who boasts is to boast in the Lord so that others may boast in the Lord and see his good works through you. This is the update from Paul about what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. This update demonstrates the power of the gospel to unite all people together in Christ, Jew and Gentile. Next, we will take note of the rumor or this threat to gospel unity. Secondly, the rumor, verses 20b to verse 21. says, and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. Why was that on the hearts of James and the elders? Why did they immediately relay that information to Paul after the encouraging and praiseworthy update? Because they were aware of something. They were shepherds. Those who are on guard for themselves and for all the flock. Those who are always on the alert, continually on the alert. Those who have a deep concern and care for the sheep allotted to their care. Their care for the church. 
And any threats, whether internal or external, that could potentially disrupt the unity becomes a point of interest for them because it could become a cause of division if not properly addressed and resolved. And we see, we've seen already through Acts this emphasis on unity and purity within the church. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, what happened to them? The Jerusalem council had to meet together because there was a conflict, a dissension on, on the gospel and the law and the implications of what that looks like in the Christian life. And it was dealt with. Letter was sent throughout the churches to make sure that this, uni- this unity would not happen. There would be unity and fellowship. And so here Paul, they tell Paul what has been going on among the Jews who have believed. The only way that Paul is going to find out these rumors is if they tell Paul what is happening. And so they tell Paul what has been going on among the Jews who have believed, the text says. These are believing Jews. And verse 20 says, they are believing Jews who are all zealous for the law. And they are all zealous for the law, not be, not to be saved. This is referring to Jewish Christians. And so they're all zealous for the law in regard to the ceremonial customs of the Old Testament that they continue to observe and practice in devotion and worship to God. It was more difficult for these Christian Jews to abandon their previous lifestyle. And so they continued to follow the cultural expressions of Judaism, though understanding that they were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Paul taught about the freedom for Jews and freedom for Gentiles in matters of preferences to live differently so long as they honored the convictions that they both shared as Christians. This was a principle that Paul spoke about in Romans chapter 14 and 15, Romans 14 and 15, and 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. And we've already seen this in Acts, this principle as it relates to Christian liberty that love maintains unity. Love maintains unity. Christian liberty is not a license to sin. It's not freedom without any responsibility, but a freedom to serve God, a freedom to serve others in love and humility, and it's not to be exercised with a spirit of indifference to those around us, to our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's to be exercised in order to win some to Christ or for the sake of unity and fellowship within the body of Christ. This means, according to 1 Corinthians 9, that in love, Christians are to give up certain preferences, certain freedoms in Christ. And what Paul teaches is not be like the world to win the world or give in to everything that everyone else around you wants. But he teaches the opposite of that. He teaches that love limits our liberty. His point was that he restricted the use of his Christian liberties, if necessary, in order to reach those whose consciences were overly strict weaker brother, those who haven't come to a full understanding of their freedom in Christ yet. And he says in 1 Corinthians 9.19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that, I may, so that I may win more. He would willingly, out of love, make any sacrifice, not sinful ones, but sacrifices necessary to win people to Christ or to maintain unity and fellowship within the church. And so Paul limited his freedom because of his love for people. He adapted to the customs of Jews in order to win Jews. Whatever their ceremonial law dictated, Paul did. It was important to them to celebrate a certain way. He would do that. To eat a meal a certain way, he would do that. And Paul was not saying that Christians should win people to Christ by accommodating their false religion, but rather he was saying that no one is, that one is more likely to gain the right to, to speak the truth by giving up freedoms to avoid unnecessarily 
of um, offending someone in matters of custom and tradition. When he was with people under the law, under the law means the Jews, even though he was no longer under the law, he would put himself under some of their customs. And we'll see that this afternoon as well. Paul was not compromising truth. He was maintaining certain things that were ceremonial in nature, indifferent to God in the same way that meat offered to God was indifferent. It's not a question of right or wrong. And if a Christian can accommodate the preference of others for the sake of gaining a hearing for the gospel or to maintain the unity within the church, then Paul would say that love triumphs over liberty. Love triumphs over liberty. When Paul was with the Gentiles, he did the same thing. When he, he would likely avoid some Jewish observances that he would normally observe or practice. For example, when he was in Jerusalem, he would follow the Jewish customs. But when he went to Antioch and he ate with Gentiles, he ate the way that Gentiles ate. Galatians chapter 2. Paul speaks about how he related also to the weak brother, referring to the weaker brother or sister who didn't fully understand their liberty in Christ. And did this all because he says, I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. And so we have to understand that there's a difference between compromising and limiting liberty. The difference is between what is optional and what is not optional. Limiting a freedom has to do with what is optional to begin with. Compromising is setting aside truth or accepting false teaching. Paul is not doing that, nor promoting that. He's telling them to limit their liberty for the sake of maintaining unity and fellowship within the church and for gospel opportunities. We also have to keep in mind that this principle applies to cultural situations and not to propositional truths laid out in Scripture. So these believing Jews being zealous for the law was not really the issue. The issue was what they were being told about Paul and his teaching. Verse 21 says, They have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. The issue was that what these zealous for the law Jewish Christians were being told was false rumors. False rumors about Paul, and these rumors have been spreading. And if not put, a, put to a stop, this could potentially disrupt and be a serious threat to the unity between not only Jews and Gentiles, but for the Jerusalem church and their witness to unbelieving Jews. And so Paul's epistles show that though he taught that circumcision should not be imposed on Gentiles, he never taught that Jewish believers should abandon it. Because whether they did or did not, it was irrelevant to their relationship to God because Romans 10.4, Christ was the end of the law. And Paul never taught the Jews to not circumcise their children. Paul even took Timothy in Acts chapter 16 and had him circumcised as a demonstration of the principle of Christian freedom and liberty for the unity of the church and for gospel opportunities. To the Jews, he became as a Jew for the sake of the gospel. Paul was also careful to observe the Jewish customs. He even took a Nazarite vow back in Acts chapter 18, verse 18. And his rush to be in Jerusalem for Pentecost showed that he still valued Israel's festival of, of calendar, calendar of festivals, whether he observed them or not. In, in Galatians 5, verse 11, Paul was accused of advocating for circumcision. But notice here, these Judaizers accused Paul of doing away with circumcision. So these are false claims. They're contradictory. 
And furthermore, this wasn't a one-time rumor that they were spreading. When it says in verse 21 that they have been told about you, the underlying Greek verb used is katekeo. It's catechism, implying learning by repetition. In other words, these Judaizers were constantly over and over spreading lies about Paul to these Jewish Christians who were zealous for the law. And James and the elders loved the church and had a care and concern for the church and did not want anything to disrupt the unity. And so they informed Paul about these rumors. And now we will see their plan of action to resolve this problem. And we'll also see Paul's willingness to, out of his own love and care and concern for the unity of the church, place himself under the customs of the law. Something that he didn't need to do, but he was willing to do for the sake of the unity of the church. So lastly, we'll look at the solution, verses 22 to 26. It says, what then is to be done? We will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore, do this that we, that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. And all will know that there's nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrifice to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went to the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Paul submitted himself to the elders of the church and followed what they wanted him to do. This was their solution, and Paul was willing to go along with it. He wasn't asked to do something that was sinful. He wasn't asked to do something contrary to his conscience. He wasn't asked to do something unreasonable. But what he was asked to do was, according to Scripture's teaching on exercising love to maintain unity by not exercising certain freedoms and liberties. This was sacrifice, not compromise. And this was not a sacrifice of truth, but rather a sacrifice done in love and humility to promote and maintain unity. He was asked to partake in a vow along with the four men who were already under a vow. This was a Nazarite vow because as we see in verse 24, it involves shaving their heads in accord with Numbers chapter 6 verse 18. The purpose of a Nazarite vow was to dedicate and set oneself apart in soul and specific devotion to the Lord for a set period of time, typically for a 30-day period. And during that time, they would abstain from wine. They would avoid any contact with the dead or anything unclean, and they would leave their hair uncut. And at the end of the dedication period, they would shave, their, shave off their hair and offer it in the temple. And they were also required to present an offering of a one-year-old lamb, male, male lamb, without defect, a one-year-old female lamb without defect, a ram without defect, a basket of unleavened bread, and various grain and drink offerings, according to Numbers chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. So there's a lot that had a, that went along with this Nazarite vow. So this would involve a considerable amount of time and money, resources, and Paul was not only to participate in the vow, as we read, but also to pay for these four men and their... The, pay their expenses so that they could fulfill and complete their vows. And the reason for doing this was the end of verse 24. It says, so that all will know that there is nothing nothing to the things which have been told about you, but that you also walk orderly, keeping the law. 
This would silence and put an end to the rumors and confusion for these believing Jews. And Paul didn't just tell them, he showed them by example in humility and love to preserve the unity of the church. James and the elders in verse 25 also remind Paul of the previous letter from the Jerusalem council back in Acts chapter 15 verses 19 to 21 concerning Gentile believers and what they were to abstain from as a way to maintain unity and fellowship by not unnecessarily offending their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. And so the focus here is on the unity within the church, maintaining that unity, expressing love and humility in order to do so. True freedom is a freedom from self. True freedom is a freedom from self. A commentator notes, quote, a truly emancipated spirit, a truly emancipated spirit such as Paul's is not in bondage to its own emancipation. End quote. Paul did what was permissible according to scripture and what was necessary practically in order to maintain unity within the church. That requires us to look outside of our own desires and interests and preferences to the interests of others. And we see in verse 26 that it says, Paul took the men and the next day purifying himself, and Paul had to purify himself and go through the ritual because he's coming from Gentile lands, and so he was considered unclean. Paul took the men the next day purifying himself, along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. He followed through in submission to the elders' request in love and humility for the sake of the unity of Christ's church. And so we've seen that Paul is willing to do whatever it takes for the unity of the church. And the question for us is, are we? Are you willing to do what it takes for the unity of the church or to maintain and preserve the unity of the church? And for us, there's some questions we need to consider as it relates to our preferences in the church. Is the decision I'm about to make, the liberty I'm about to express, and the way that I go about it, which is just as important, could it hurt the unity of the church? Could it hurt the purity of the church? Another question to consider is, will the practice of my liberty tempt others to sin? Will the practice of my liberty tempt others to sin? Romans 14, 13 says, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Another question, has my liberty become a covering for my idols? Galatians 5, 13 says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another. Another question, have I informed my conscience from Scripture about a freedom that I have in Christ? Have I calibrated my conscience to think about it rightly and properly? We also need to consider that our conscience may be more biblically informed than those around us. 1 Corinthians 8, 9 through 13 says, But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against a brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. 
Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. We need to be patient. We need to be understanding that they may come to a fuller understanding of their freedom in Christ. Also, be careful how you practice and how you express your liberties. Romans 14.22 says, The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. And so there's lots of different circumstances where this can apply. And I would ask that you would think through some of these questions as you work through some of those things that you are free in Christ to do, but it may be a stumbling block to a brother or sister. So all of these questions and things to consider, if you notice, they have to do with others. It has to do with exercising love. It has to do with exercising humility. It has to do with what we read earlier, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others, regarding one another as more important than yourselves, doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. It has to do with caring about other people. And it has to do with maintaining unity within the church for the strengthening of the church, for the testimony and witness of the church, and for the spread of the gospel. This is about the glory of Christ and not your glory. This is about the unity of the church and not about your preferences. This is about the priority of serving others above exercising your freedoms in Christ. Love triumphs over liberty. And just as our unity in Christ came at a great cost, as modeled by our Lord's self-sacrifice, his self-giving of his own life for the sake of others, maintaining unity comes at a great cost. And we are to model our lives after his example in obedience to the glory of God. And Paul, immediately after arriving in Jerusalem, because of his care and concern for the church, lives out this principle of, of love maintains unity. He heard about what was going on, and he did what it was, he did what was necessary and permissible according to the scriptures, put himself under a vow, did what was asked of him by the elders, submitted himself to their leadership for the sake of unity within the church, so that the Jerusalem church wouldn't hinder their testimony and witness to other unbelieving Jews, which there would be thousands and thousands of because it's around Pentecost. The gospel transforms our relationships. It unites us together and love and humility maintains that unity that we have in Christ. We should be willing to sacrifice our Christian freedoms and liberties and preferences for the sake of maintaining unity within the church. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the unity that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ, that you have made both groups into one, breaking down the dividing wall of hostility, that you've done it through your Son, Jesus Christ, who became our perfect substitute and sacrifice in our place, that through his death and resurrection, we are now united to your Son. We are now united to one another in him. And so we ought to demonstrate, display, and live out the love that you have for us 
towards one another, that in love and humility would maintain the unity that you purchased for us at at a great cost, that we would give up certain freedoms and preferences and liberties for the sake of our brothers and sisters, whether they're weaker in faith, uh, whether it is that there's those around us who don't know you, if it could present an opportunity for the gospel to be heard, if it could present an off, uh, an opportunity for us to lay down ourselves for the sake of others, help us to be quick and willing to do that. And may your word and may your gospel be continually proclaimed to those who need Christ. We pray that you would use us as your church uh, to proclaim this message that does unite all people together. So we thank you for this time. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.